Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. It's Touching a Giant Rock Awareness Week on episode 180 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and I say that because our fall TV coverage for 2017 is going to continue this week in a double dose of Geek Tamment. We're going to, for the first time ever, be reviewing Outlander on the show. That's right, the season three premiere. I'll have a special guest with me, actually, to talk about that. Also, The Orville, Seth MacFarlane's sci-fi comedy premiered on Fox I'll give you my review of that. And to top it all off, all things Gotham this week to get you ready for the big premiere coming up this Thursday. Some very familiar names from the cast. Robin Lord Taylor is going to be here. Sean Pertwee, Corey Michael Smith, Aaron Richards, and so many more to talk about. Maybe the most anticipated premiere of Gotham ever based on last year's finale and the previews that we've already seen. So things are jam-packed this week. Let's get right to it. Starting with comics first is what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Drew Powell from Gotham on Fox. You're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to grab your long box, your laptop, or your tablet. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading in another video game adaptation comic. This time from a different publisher, though. We're talking about Dynamite Entertainment and Killer Instinct number one, with Ian Eddington doing the writing, Cam Adams on the art, Jorge Soodles doing the colors, Tony Pitieri from a larger world studios does the letters, Yildiri Sinar and Peter Pantazis do the cover. Now, I will say this about this book. If you've not played Killer Instinct, or if you haven't played it in a while and you don't have a knowledge of these characters, yet yeah, you're going to be a little lost. But at the same time, The story is pretty interesting, so you can read this without knowing about Killer Instinct and just decide which characters you kind of like on the fly. But of course, on the cover, we see Kim Woo, so we know that part of the story is centered around her. And what we're dealing with here is like a post-apocalyptic Earth. There was a war between the evils of the astral plane who've been trying to break into Earth, and they come through, and there was a battle, and you know there was the whole, okay, was this battle worth it kind of angle that's being played here. But I will say this, for a post-apocalyptic story... It didn't feel as post-apocalyptic to me. I mean, you don't see cities burning or anything like that. And yeah, I mean, you have certain humans and they're, you know, struggling to find their next meal and certain things like that. But it just doesn't feel post-apocalyptic. I mean, there are some tropes there, like you don't know who's out there. And if we venture out, we don't know what's going to happen. There's that, that kind of thing does happen. But it didn't really feel as dire, I guess, is, is the best play, way I could put it. Not that there was a whole lot of focus on that either. What there was a lot of focus on was the action, and I did love that, both from the art perspective and the writing perspective. The action was really, really good. We got to see plenty of that. Of course, we see the coven coming to the mix at some point. Not a spoiler. Again, they are on the cover. And if you, you're not familiar with Killer Instinct, you're not going to know who they are anyway, so it doesn't matter if it's a spoiler or not. But I do love the action in this book, and I love the fact that what they give us, what Eddington gives us, is there's something going on with Kim Wu and her allies, and they can't quite figure out what it is. And it turns out they have to find someone that's going to help them. Here's the thing. We do get introduced to another character in this book, and it's almost like a... It's one of those points where it's like, okay, is this friend or foe? Then It's not really made 
exactly clear unless, again, you're deep in the lore of Killer Instinct. You probably don't know one way or the other. I will admit that I've forgotten more about Killer Instinct than I remember. So for me, this is almost a fresh start. It's something like, like I, I can enjoy the story and have that surprise element because I don't remember who all of these characters are. I mean, there are certain characters that I do remember, like Kimwar I remember, and uh, the Shadow Lord I remember, stuff like that. But there are other characters that I don't so much. So you can go into this with fresh eyes. Don't let this book scare you away if you don't have a deep knowledge because there is that interesting story, and you do know that there are certain things coming. And the fact that the action is really good, and if the art is done well, and it is by Cam Adams in this book, you enjoy the action that much more. And the colors play a role in this, too, because the colors pop in certain instances where you have, like, the power elements come into play. The colors really pop, so really, really important there. It was just an enjoyable read from start to finish. So I'm going to give this a poll. It's something that I will definitely continue reading, even though you didn't get a whole lot of depth of story here. I definitely still enjoyed it, so I'm looking forward to what's coming from Killer Instinct. Image Comics does a reboot of a comic that hasn't even been made. That's the tagline for Retcon Number 1 by Matt Nixon doing the writing. Toby Cypress on the art, Matt Kotzer, does the letters. Now, this centers around a character, Lieutenant Brandon Ross, who's part of a very interesting unit. I will just say that. And I do have to spoil this just a tad bit so you can actually understand what the heck's going on here. He's part of some sort of a unit that is tr- keeping track of a group that was a paranormal army unit that would go in anytime there was a a threat of a paranormal sort, they would go in and sort of deal with it for the military like a black ops unit. So he is part of another unit that's keeping tabs on these people. Now, you do get to see some paranormal elements come into play here, but the funny thing about this book is it, it doesn't give you a whole lot. And I know that's on purpose. I mean, you do get the kind of monologue by, internal monologue by Brandon Ross, the lieutenant, and you find out who's who and, you know, what they're looking for. And then there's a scene between him and one of the people that they're keeping tabs on. And there's kind of a connection there. I won't spoil it for you, but there is a connection between them there. And he understands who this person is now and who he was allied with. And, and it kind of changes things for Lieutenant Ross. And it's not like he's really super into the group that he's with anyway. And that's, that's very, very clear in this book. And his partner is a very interesting element of this story. It's almost like if you had a job that you really didn't like, but you needed a job and you didn't really like people that you worked with, but you did it anyway, because you needed money. That, that kind of seems like where Lieutenant Brandon Ross is right now. The only problem is, is that there are a couple surprise elements in this book, or these should have been surprise elements. That didn't really pop for me. It wasn't a wow, especially one that involved Lieutenant Ross. That it, that wasn't a wow moment for me. I mean, it was it was neat, I guess, but it wasn't a wow moment. And even even the first what I would call fight scene or conflict scene, it wasn't again a wow moment for me. And I really feel like it could have been. And I don't know how it could have been done better per se, but it just it just didn't jump off the page for me. I mean, the art in general didn't really jump off the page for me either. Toby Cypress's art. I mean, it was it was hit or miss. There were there were some really good points, and there were some points where I didn't really enjoy it as much. The story was, I don't know, maybe weird for the sake of weird isn't really the right way to put it because I I understood what was going on, but then I thought the ending was also a little abrupt, and it, and it made me wonder. Okay, so 
And I mean, I don't know. You just kind of almost see it coming. I guess, I guess was was the problem here with, especially with the Lieutenant Ross character. You kind of see what's going to happen coming, and you don't really get a whole lot a lot of information on who he's working for in the first place, other than what they're doing. We really don't know who the who they are at this point. And I mean, do you kind of get some Hellboy vibes here? A little bit, but I don't think enough to really make it interesting and, and for me to say to like a Hellboy reader, hey, this is a book you're going to want to check out. Now, I'll be honest, I didn't really get the whole reboot of a comic that hasn't even happened thing yet. I expect it's a, a humor element in this almost based on that, and that didn't happen. And Image, Image Comics usually does books like that really, really well. So I guess for me, this book felt a little lost in translation. wasn't really what I expected, so I'm going to go ahead and give this a drop. I, I did not enjoy Retcon number one. Hey, if you give it a shot and you disagree with me, let me know. That's going to do it for what we're reading this week because we've got a boatload of geek team, and that's right. We're going to be talking about two shows. First up, it's the Orville. Seth MacFarlane's comedy from Fox is up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Nathan Darrow from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to hop aboard our exploratory vessel and head 400 years into the future with my review of the Orville series premiere that happened on Fox this past Sunday. And I'll be honest, there was something about this that just worked for me. I wasn't blown away by it, but it just felt right. And this is a spoiler-filled review, by the way. I mean, to me, it struck me like a 70s, 80s kind of sci-fi show, but it was a comedy instead of that. And yeah, of course... There were some Star Trek vibes there. I even got some Lost in Space vibes. But also, you mix like a Spaceballs type vibe in there as well, I thought, because the comedy that was being delivered kind of made me think about that, but it wasn't as spoofish as Spaceballs was, and it wasn't as out there with the stuff that it was spoofing, I didn't think, at least. Seth MacFarlane, there's just something about him that that just feels right, especially in this genre. And quick story, when I was at San Diego Comic-Con 2017... I was trying so quickly to get to each room that I needed to be in that I went to the restroom real quickly, and when I was leaving, I almost hit Seth MacFarlane in the face with the men's room door. True story. I was embarrassed. He was really cool about it. He was rushing. I was rushing. He was a really nice guy. So I just thought I'd throw that out there. There's something about this cast that just felt right. But before I get into that... This basically is centers around a character, Ed Mercer, who's been looking to get the lead in a ship. For, he's trying to be a captain of a ship for his entire career. Hasn't really worked out for him until recently. They found a ship called the Orville, which is an exploratory vessel that's just supposed to deliver supplies. And that's it. Now, his wife, played by Adrian Palicki, is also part of the show. Her name is Kelly Grayson. And we'll talk about her role coming up here shortly. But when you meet the crew of the Orville for the first time, let me tell you, first of all, Scott Grimes, who plays Gordon Malloy, who's Ed Mercer's longtime friend on this show, you can tell he's like the lovable screw-up, so you already know what sort of guy you're going to get there. And then you have the one of the characters that intrigued me the most is actually Penny Johnson Gerald's character, Dr. Claire Finn, because she says she took the assignment because she thought this is where she'd be needed. And it seems like there's more to that. We don't really get into that in this first episode. But I feel like that's something that we're going to get to at some point. And then you've got Bordas, who <laughs> It's the Wharf character, basically. That's exactly the kind of character that Bordas plays. And I, I just love that. And then what you don't expect is the badass enforcer of the show is a young woman, Alana Catan, who's played by Halston Sage. 
And I got to tell you, the makeup department on the show is actually did a really, really good job. And you meet the crew, and they just sort of jive together. Everybody sort of gets along really, really well. And then you enter Adrian Palicki's character. Now, the reason that there's tension between Ed and Kelly is because Kelly was caught cheating on Ed in the very beginning of the episode with another alien. So that kind of adds tension there. And then what ends up happening, she ends up being the XO on the Orville, which Ed Mercer did not know before this all thing started going down, before he accepted the position. So you can only imagine how that went. I won't go into exactly everything that happened on the show, but they go on their first mission and things go sideways and there's a lot of action involved and I don't want to get into every little detail of the first episode. But, I mean, since this was a comedy, we'll talk about the jokes. Did all the jokes land? Absolutely not. But it's just kind of that offhand, natural humor that Seth MacFarlane had that absolutely works. And then you've got Scott Grimes, who just also added to that, but in a different way. He was, again, like I said, the lovable screw-up. And he doesn't frustrate you. I mean, a lot of people that play that role can get frustrating and annoying as time goes on. But for some reason, Scott Grimes really, really didn't. And the Bordas character, I got to tell you, Peter Macon, I know that maybe he's not supposed to be the most funny character on the show. But for some reason, Bordas just made me laugh with that deadpan type delivery. It was just funny for me. And again, not all the jokes landed. And maybe there were certain scenes that drug on a little bit longer than they should. Like there was a meeting between Kelly and Gordon in a hallway. And she's like, hey, are we cool? And that seemed to drag on a little bit. That didn't really work for me. And I thought that they drug on some of the scenes when they were trying to get the aging device. I thought that that kind of drug on a little bit. But the action scenes were good. There was good humor involved in the action scenes and certain things that worked out. Like like when he says, uh, we've got a better weapon. Breaks. And they hit the brakes. And, the, and one of the bad dudes, one of the krill, hits his head on the windshield of the ship. And that's how they kind of deal with that conflict. I love that they use that sort of thing because that's the kind of thing I was kind of hoping for from this show was this kind of offhand action that wasn't taking itself too seriously. And that is the beauty part of the show right there is that it doesn't take itself too seriously and it knows what it wants to be. It knows what it is. Was it perfect? Absolutely not. It wasn't perfect, but this is something that I enjoyed. I didn't think it to death. I didn't expect it to be this massive sci-fi show and had all these different elements in it and all this depth. What I expected was a show that was going to be funny at times, that would give me some action, that would give me some nice character depth, that would give me some characters that would be different like you'd, like you'd see in a sci-fi series. And it looks like that's going to happen in future episodes as well as we get introduced to new characters and new planets. And the crew just worked. The chemistry was there. And I'm sure that we'll get more information on the backstories of some of these characters in a little bit more depth. You kind of get it in the first meeting where everybody kind of does the whole tell me a little bit about yourself thing when they meet the captain. So we do get a little bit of that. And I think we'll probably get more information on certain characters as the show goes on. And then that twist at the end that it was Kelly who recommended Ed for the captain position on the Orville in the first place, you know that's going to come into play at some time as well. So again, did this show blow me away? No, it didn't, but it's definitely a show that I'm going to look forward to watching going forward, and we'll see how much it builds on this first episode. So don't really feel like it's fair to give a rating right now. I will give my full rating on the series during the season finale when we actually get to that point. 
I will give you my final rating on the Orville from Fox. Up next, our second dose of This Week in Geek Tainment, diving into the Outlander Season 3 premiere, next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Cameron Beacon Doba from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's our second part of This Week in Geek Tainment this week, talking about a show that we haven't talked about before, and that's the Season 3 premiere of Outlander. Now, if you don't know what Outlander is, it's basically about an English combat nurse named Claire from 1945 who mysteriously swept back in time through a magical time-traveling stone to the year of 1743 in Scotland, and that means the Lairds and Battles of Culloden and all that stuff, and... Why are we talking about this? Well, first of all, time travel, people. Did you not hear what I just said? But second of all, when I was at San Diego Comic-Con, I stopped by the Outlander booth and I saw just the overwhelming support for the show there and at the panel as well. I was like, okay, we've got to start talking about this show on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. And just so happens in my own household, I have an expert in Outlander, not just the books, but the series as well. And it's my wife, Pam Witham. How you doing, dear? Hello, fellow Sassanach. How are you? Well, and and I mean, it just makes sense to start talking about this show, and this is actually a good spot to talk about it. Spoiler-filled review, by the way, of the Season 3 premiere, so if you haven't seen it yet, make sure you go onto the Stars app or wherever you watch Stars and and watch it, because, I mean, this was the build-up after the finale, right, where we see her, and she's going to go back, she finds out that Jamie is alive, that he survived the battle, so now we find out how he's going to survive the battle, but let's get right to the battle. What the hell was that? Oh, my goodness. All of the fellow Outlander fans, I think, were okay with it from the reviews that I've seen online. But, oh, my goodness, I could not have been more disappointed. Um, I think that between the buildup that happened with the director and the cast and the crew just really, like, making it into a mammoth production and then to hear that they took nine days to shoot and then we get that and it was like an egg being laid it was a dud and and i'm not happy with it i'm i'm very disappointed with it and i think it was a dud because i mean at least for me it was because i mean all the build up between this this final showdown between between jamie fraser who plays who's played by sam hugan and Tobias Menzies, who's who plays Blackjack Randall and Frank Randall. I mean, ever since that sexual assault scene seasons ago and and everything that's gone down between them and Jamie not being able to kill him last season because it would have affected Frank's future and he made that promise to Claire and now all bets are off. They're finally going to clash. And to me, it felt like kind of like my criticism of Avengers Age of Ultron where you've got this epic battle between Ultron and the Avengers and instead you're cutting away and showing me refugees getting on the helicarrier give me five seconds of that don't give me 20 minutes of jamie death breathing you know (laughs) no and and i agree with you and i think that for everyone who has been following outlander who has read the books or who just saw the series on on tv i think that this is the chance that jamie finally has this is his golden ticket ever since he found out that he, that Blackjack was alive when Claire and, and him were in France and that he could get his revenge finally on this man who's caused nothing but pain and, and terror and heartache upon him and Claire and his family. And for it to be like a, 
a two second duel. It was it was just blah. Exactly. And I mean, I thought the battle overall, I expected kind of more, even with some of the other characters around. I mean, Marta and, and also Rupert as well. We'll get to Rupert, Rupert here in a little bit, but I kind of, I guess I expected more. And I know that they had to make the, you know, you have to go between the past and the present in this instance. I get that, but I felt like not enough was actually given to the actual battle. I would like to see that extended. And then we move on to the other stuff in the second episode. I know that this is a shorter season. I just think that they, they, they missed an opportunity to make this battle very game of Thrones, epic type of battle. And I agree with you. I mean, you say that you feel like as the director, as the crew of this huge production of Outlander, that you owe it to the fans to give them this battle of Culloden and then we're left wanting more. I wanted more. I wanted to see Blackjack and Jamie play out this battle that's been building up for two seasons and just really like with their last breaths inside of their body because Blackjack knows he's going to die because Claire told him so. And don't forget that everybody thinks that Claire's a witch. And then Jamie telling Claire flat out, I am dying in this battle. You're leaving me. I have nothing left. You and the baby are going to be safe. I'm dying here. And we didn't get it at all. You, I, I wanted so much more and I expected more from the, from the director not that Sam and Tobias did anything wrong. They are magical on screen, but I think that they edited too much of the battle out and they should not have done that. Let's stick to in the past for a second too, because you fast forward to them, you know, of course, Jamie lives, Rupert finds him, drags him back and they're all at this house together. And then the Redcoats find them and we know that they're starting to be executed one by one. And and let's talk about Grant O'Rourke for a second who plays Rupert, who did just a fantastic job in that whole scene. And that scene between him and Jamie right there at the end was just unbelievable. It was, it was you know, Rupert really took charge of that scene in particular because he gives Jamie forgiveness for killing Dougal. And he gives Jamie a laugh, which I think that when you think about Rupert and his character, that Rupert's a fun-loving guy. He's a badass, of course, but, you know, it, it was a very, very... You, you could not help but not get teared up by that scene between him and, and Jamie. And don't worry about uh, Dougal, by the way, Outlander fans. Uh, Graham McTavish had a pretty good year on Castlevania and on Preacher as well. Don't don't feel bad for him. He, he did all right for himself. But, <laughs> I, I mean, let, let's talk about the present now. Of course, we fast forward, we see, and, you know, especially in nerd culture, everybody talks about wanting to have a strong female character, especially a strong female lead. And if, and if Claire Randall slash Frazier isn't that, I, I, I don't know who is. So let's talk about one scene in particular that really stood out to me. And I know it did to you as well. When she's meeting Frank's asshole boss and <laughs> that's a good way to put it. <laughs> he kind of, uh, you know, he throws them. It's 1945. I mean, come on. So he's, he's being the misogynistic man of his day. And the Claire that we would normally see in Scotland doesn't come out. She bites her tongue. She does. And and I that scene in particular, if and I think that maybe a lot of people got caught up with 
how much of a jackass that uh, Frank's boss was to miss one of the key points in that the Claire that we knew in season one and two would never have allowed anyone to speak to her like that. Like she didn't matter. Like she was just a woman. I mean, for God's sake, Claire would against the leader of the church back in that Scottish village back in the 1700s. I mean, she was the one to mm -hmm. just really lay it all out on the table and to call out Dougal in collecting money for yep. the Jacobite cause. And then to see her just sort of sit there and take it. I mean, how could you not feel the despair and, and just see how broken she was that she wasn't with Jamie. It, yeah, yeah I, it was it was difficult to watch, actually. Like, do something. I'm just, I'm waiting for her to say something sarcastic and just really put this guy in his place, and she didn't. And I'm like, oh, my God, this well, and poor then woman. From that, we get our second battle of the show, which is between Claire and Frank in the living room where everything just kind of, kind of explodes where he starts talking about the past and he breaks the deal and they just they just that was that was a nasty one well yeah and and you know for all of the outlander fans i did read that that scene where she threw the ashtray at him only took one take nice <laughs> nice that and, could and have been tobias better aim but still <laughs> and tobias was happy that she missed him but i i will say that you know it again you have claire who you you could almost argue for all of the people who are on Team Frank, had Claire not have gone through the stone, would their love been just as passionate as what Claire found with Jamie? I mean, because you have to remember that Claire and Frank were away from each other for years during the war, and then they came back to reconnect with and one another. And had trouble having a and child, then, too, by the way. Right. Well, and, and then we find out that that would not have been a possibility mm -hmm. for Claire and Frank. So, I mean, there's all of this divine intervention that happens, of course. But, you know, it's to be expected. And I think that all of the people who are on Team Frank are going to get their retribution this year. So as somebody who's read the book, I've, I purposely have not read the books so I can be surprised by the show. But since you have read the books without spoiling anything... How much, I mean, I know you were a little, little bit disappointed in the premiere, not that it was a bad episode, but there were things that, that could have been done better. I think we both agree on that. So, yeah, the, the battle definitely was disappointing. But is there a lot to look forward to here now? Are we finally going to get the answers that we're looking for? Are we finally going to capitalize on that finale at some point? Well, I mean, your season three is going to get back to Claire and, and Brianna and them trying to put the pieces together uh, to find Jamie and find out what happened to him. Um, so absolutely, you're going to get that kind of closure. And I think that you're also going to have a different side of Jamie presented to the audience that's going to kind of maybe turn people away from him in a way. And it, it'll be... It'll be a double-edged sword with Jamie this season, I think, for some people. If you're not watching Outlander yet, guys, check it out. I mean, there's a lot more elements to it in the nerd world than you than you think, and there's a lot of epic battles, backstabbing, 
a whole bunch of stuff that you'll love. That's going to do it for our season three premiere review of Outlander. And uh, honey, we'll talk to you at some point down the road. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. You're going to end this without even trying to do a Scottish accent? Should I try to do my Scottish accent? (laughs) That is amazing. Debatable. Debatable. (laughs) Well, on that note, I think it's a good time to get to some uh, nerd news. That's up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Daveed Zeus from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. These days, it seems like we just can't escape a galaxy far, far away because it's time for nerd news. And once again, kicking things off with some Star Wars movie news, and it didn't take long at all to find out that J.J. Abrams, yes, will in fact be writing and directing Episode Nine, but he will also be writing it with Chris Terrio. That name might sound familiar because he's been involved in the DCEU and Justice League. So a very, very interesting combination. Now, because of this, they've pushed the release date to December 20th, 2019. And I can hear the Star Wars universe now bitching and complaining. Everybody that hated The Force Awakens is freaking out about J.J. Abrams taking over as writer and director, probably thinking that it's going to be another Return of the Jedi. To that, I say, look, guys, we haven't even seen Episode 8 yet. And for anybody that wanted Ryan Johnson for Episode 9, he came out and basically said, hey, I was only supposed to do 8, not doing 9. Didn't even didn't even seem like he wanted to do 9, which seems like a crazy thing because Star Wars prints money. And I'm not sure why you wouldn't want to come back if given that opportunity. And it seems like... It just seems like you get that vibe that they believe in what he's doing with Episode 8 as well. Now, there's, of course, rumors saying J.J. wasn't the first choice and what have you. But as someone who actually liked The Force Awakens, was it a perfect movie? Absolutely not. But look at the way he used Rey and the way he treated that character and really propped her up in that movie. I loved that. And I love the way that he brought in the classic characters as well and kind of didn't shove them down our throat. Everybody served a purpose in that movie. And was it close to A New Hope? Sure it was. But I'm still going to go with the argument with we needed Faith Restored in the Star Wars movies after the prequels. I think The Force Awakens did that, made few people feel good about going to see a Star Wars movie again. And then Rogue One was a huge success. Who knows what the Han Solo movie is going to be like and who knows what Episode Eight's going to be like. But at this point, I feel like Star Wars has enough momentum going forward that they've got good faith for Episode Nine. And let's face it, J.J. Abrams is good at his job. There's a lot of stuff of J.J.'s that I've loved over the years. I'm a J.J. Abrams fan. I'm not apologizing for that. And that's not why I'm giving this opinion. I'm just saying that... This is a chance, especially for J.J., for everybody that was upset about The Force Awakens to come in, round out this trilogy, and just make it really, really good. This That news, by the way, broken by StarWars.com. It was a busy week for The Hollywood Reporter, though, and as a matter of fact, when I saw this story, big smile came across my face for so many reasons. Patty Jenkins, it's official, coming back for the Wonder Woman sequel, and she's going to receive a big Big pay raise. According to The Hollywood Reporter, we could see anywhere from 7 to $9 million for Patty Jenkins in this movie. And you know what? Well deserved. You want to talk about long overdue. And good for Patty Jun- Jenkins for standing her ground saying, hey, I should get paid the same amount as someone else would get paid to do the same sequel or else I'm not coming back. And she knew what she had. 
Patty Jenkins did this without being, you know, all Hollywood about it. She knew what she was worth. She was willing to wait until she got what she deserved. And that's exactly what it was. She's getting what she deserved. And I know that there's probably a small crowd going, oh, the yeah, you know, it was $1 million that she got for the first one, and now she's going to hold off for 7 to $9 million. Ooh, I wish I could do that. A million dollars would be fine by me. That's not the point, okay? I know maybe this is a, you know, rich getting richer problem, but first of all, Patty Jenkins worked her ass off in that first movie, so she absolutely deserves a, ra- deserves a raise. Second of all, look how we're still talking about the Wonder Woman movie months later. How many movies can we even say about that? in the last few years. And Patty Jenkins did that. There's Oscar buzz around Wonder Woman, and rightfully so. So this is well-deserved, if you ask me. And if you look at the release dates, by the way, December 13th, 2019, that's when Wonder Woman's coming out. What comes out the week after that? We just talked about it. Star Wars Episode Nine. I know Star Wars is going to be number one that second week. I'm under no illusion about that. But doesn't it kind of set up like an epic showdown of some kind especially if wonder woman 2 is really really good like we expect it to be i don't really want to speculate on who the villain might be i mean obviously you kind of want cheetah because you want barbara and minerva introduced probably sooner rather than later i think that would be really neat but at this point i just trust in patty jenkins so much that whether she wants to go that route or the Circe route or any other route for that matter I'm in because I think that Patty Jenkins has earned that right. And I hope that this is a sign of things to come. Maybe Patty Jenkins doesn't just work on Wonder Woman movies now. Maybe we see her work on a future Justice League project. Or maybe she takes on another character of some kind. This is Patty Jenkins planting her flag at the top of the mountain saying, Hey, I'm here. I'm the number one choice. And I should be because I earned it. So congratulations to Patty Jenkins for that. Let's talk a little bit about a reboot that has been getting a lot of buzz lately as well. The Hellboy reboot. And let's start. There's a couple stories this week. Let's start with David Harbour and the Hellboy social media accounts, by the way, tweeting out the first look at David Harbour himself as Hellboy. And okay, I've been seeing mixed reactions about this. So I'm going to address the first one. Oh, it looks too much like Ron Perlman. It's friggin' Hellboy. What what do you want them to do? Exactly how did you want them to change it to make it look any different, first of all? Second of all, we haven't seen anything. No motion footage at all whatsoever. And if they did change it too much, you probably would have bitched about that anyway. So, and if you do look at them side by side, to me, quite a significant significant difference. If you ask me, I think that this David Harbour version, with all due respect to Ron Perlman's version, which I also loved, this one has a more realistic look and feel to it, doesn't it? I mean, you see battle scars on there. It also looks enough like the classic Hellboy that that you don't say, ah, you know, too much of a deviation. This has a more real and practical effect look to it, and I think that once we do see some sort of a trailer, some sort of footage from this movie, once they get rolling, I think that that's going to come come into play. I think that anyone who has a problem with this look is going to see that on camera for the first time and go, huh, you know what? It does look pretty good. And I know that there's been, there's a certain crowd that says that the Perlman version was a little bit cartoonish. I mean, for the time it was made, that was what they were doing. I don't blame them for for using the kind of 
design that they did, and I also have no problem with it today. I, if that came out today, I still wouldn't have a problem with it. I don't mind either look. I like them both. I'm just saying that I think this one has a little bit more of a practical look, and he's not all geared up in this first photo. You know there's going to be multiple looks here, so, I mean, can we really, I mean, honestly, see anything play out before we start complaining about it? Seriously. And I know there are some exceptions. Maybe you're going to bust my balls about, you know, the Inhumans and the first look at Medusa and her being bald and all that stuff, and the, and the show hasn't even come out yet. Okay, maybe you got me there. But I think that's a rightful criticism. The fact that she has her powers from her hair and she's bald, I think I have a right to be upset about that. This is a first look at Hellboy, and I think it looks pretty good, and I'm willing to wait to judge the final product when it actually comes out. But now we know, by the way, according to The Hollywood Reporter, Who's going to be replacing Ed Screen in the Hellboy reboot as Major Ben Daimio? And that is Daniel Day Kim. And I got to tell you, really good choice right off the bat. But you might remember Daniel Day Kim was part of a pretty big controversy over equal pay when it came to the Hawaii Five O series and CBS. And he ended up leaving the series and it was a big to do. And now, I mean, kind of works out. For Daniel Day Kim, doesn't it? And of course, remember his work on Lost. It just seems like the right fit. And anybody who's not familiar with the character, yes, because of a paranormal encounter, he can turn into a jaguar when he wants. That'll look pretty cool, I think, once they get those effects going. He's also a member of the BPRD, so kind of fits right in there. I I think that this is a good choice, and I think that Daniel Day Kim has proven himself over the years, especially in sci-fi-type realms, that he can do this, and he's got that look. I mean, actually, there, there are shots of him where if you take the character from the comics side-by-side side with Daniel Day Kim, the look is really, really close. I think it's just going to look right. It's going to feel right. You know he's a legit actor, and that's really all we want, isn't it? We want somebody that is a legit actor that is going to go in there and kill it and make this reboot successful because reboots, you know, there's always a little bit of caution bulb lit when it comes to reboots, and I think this one makes us feel pretty, pretty good about it. Esports are taking off, guys. There's no question about that. And we keep seeing it level by level go higher, and I think this is another step towards that. Blizzard has announced that they're opening an esports arena in Los Angeles. And they're going to do it quickly, too, by the way. Now, according to the press release that was released by Blizzard, Blizzard Arena is described as a, quote, cutting-edge live event destination for pro players, esports fans, and everyone else who loves premier competition. i got to tell you, whether you're a professional gamer or not, whether you're a huge fan of watching professional gaming or not, isn't it amazing that we have gotten to this point? It's unbelievable. Millions of dollars, even billions of dollars are being thrown around. And now we're building arenas that are specifically for this. And they've said they didn't release a whole lot of details exactly on the on the arena itself. But it's going to have, you know, there's plenty of spaces for professional gamers, spectators and the media. There'll be media places for this. And it's actually going to open on October the 7th. Guys, that's less than a month away that they're going to open this thing, and it's going to start with the Overwatch Contenders Season 1 playoffs. There's also going to be Hearthstone events held there, World of Warcraft events. They've already announced that. Tell me that this isn't a huge, huge deal and one of the biggest news stories in video games right now. I know that Nintendo had their Nintendo Direct, and we did get some news from that, but to me, 
This is a big deal and a bigger deal because this pushes gaming that much further into legitimacy to the point where there's actually been discussions about professional gaming entering the Olympic Games. The Olympic Games, guys. Seriously, can you imagine that day happening? And you know what? It could happen. Ping pong's in the Olympics. I don't see why professional video game play couldn't end up being in the Olympics as well. This is something that might actually happen. So it's getting to the point where video game esports are starting to take over popularity of, and I'm going to say this, and you might get mad at me if you're a gaming fan, but actual sports. I mean, sports that are actually played like baseball and hockey and things like that. Tell me how, how soon it's going to be before professional esports gaming is more popular than hockey. And I know hockey fans might be pissed off at that, but guess what? It's starting to happen, and it's going to start one by one taking over a lot of sports. And before you know it, there's professional gaming all over television, not just online, but all over television as well. You're already starting to see it, and video games are starting to creep up slowly, and it, it's going to be hugely popular in the next couple of years. And I don't think this is the last of one of these arenas that we've seen, and I think we'll see more than Blizzard get involved in this as well. That's it for Nerd News this week. Up next, the cast of Gotham joins me. Talk to them live at San Diego Comic-Con 2017. We'll get you ready for the upcoming season next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Robin Lord Taylor from Gotham, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The show you've heard a lot about on our podcast over the years in Season 4 of Gotham kicks off on Fox on September the 21st at 8 p.m. So excited for it. And I actually got a chance to talk to a lot of the cast at San Diego Comic-Con 2017. And kicking it off was our buddy Robin Lord Taylor, who's been on the show before. And I asked him, you know, that luck seems to be on Penguin's side in these finales. What is it about you and finales, man? It seems like every finale you kind of come out smelling like a rose. It's so bad. Uh, well, you know, he needs some sort of, like, something to balance off, like, every horrible thing that's happened to him <laughs> the rest of the season, right? I mean... That is true. You know, yeah, no, it's... Yeah, I... I it was funny, like, you know, when the show ended last season, you know, we didn't know that at that point that we were going to have a fourth season. And I was like, well, you know, obviously it would be hor- horrible if it ended. But I was like, well, at least I won. So if it ended now, like, you know. But no, we were, we were so, so thrilled to be back. Yeah. Next up, I talked to Sean Pertwee. And you knew the second he sat down that we were in for a good time. Sean Pertwee in the house. How are you? How's it going? I'm all right. Yeah, a little bit bleary. I was uh, got busting heads last night in Master Bruce. So it's two in the morning. So he apologizes profusely not to be here. We literally were in a, in a boat. Beating people up until two o'clock. And so I got up at four just to talk to you and to act as the you know the butler that I am and to uh, represent. Should we say. After that, I asked Sean with David making that transformation into Batman. How much is Alfred even aware of that? So we saw Bruce turn that corner in the finale to start to maybe become the very beginnings of what he's going to be in Batman. How much is Alfred going to be keenly aware of what's going on with Bruce early on? They are aware. This is a thing that um, I was just saying. I'm sorry if I feel like I'm repeating myself, but they just asked the same thing, was that 
I have a son called Alfred, he's the same age, and all you can hope to do with any teenager or any parents amongst you is basically be able to communicate. And it doesn't matter how old they are, is you have to find a common denominator. And ours is, is, is a, a, a dysfunctionality uh, hints towards something that doesn't work. But their dysfunctionality is perceived by other one as everybody else as being strange, but in actual fact, functions. And Alfred has a wherewithal to know that now, because Alfred is damaged, so he goes, he lets go, he goes, well, if the only way of, you can't beat him, join him. All I ask is that you tell me, tell me what you're doing, tell me what you're doing, include me. So you actually do see the Alfred and Bruce that you now expect from the Michael Goffs and the other Alfreds. You see the germination of that. But it doesn't necessarily, they, they go, they start to go on vigilante missions. He says, you know, and he tries to, tries to offer them advice, but he's become so abstract because he is, like, that's a great thing about the Batman character. He, uh, he, he thinks in an abstract manner. You can teach him one way, but he sees in 15, he's moving 12, 15 moves ahead now. So he's superseding his mentors. And this maybe there's a reason why Raish is on the scene, why Raish wants him to inherit the mantle as a dragon's head and why Gordon becomes concerned. But uh, there's so much potential there that you, how do you cost it that? How do you control that? You can't cajole it because they'll lie to you. You know, so it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Up next was executive producer John Stevens, and the conversation kind of turned to new characters that would be coming to Gotham, and then the conversation turned to the Al Ghul family, and I was kind of trying to hitch around and find out who we might see from that family on the show. There's not necessarily an Ancestry.com for the Al Ghul yeah, yeah, yeah. line, so knowing who's already on Arrow, yeah. it might be hard to find out who that's going to be exactly, or True. it narrows it down completely. I, I think it might narrow it down, actually. I think it might, well, I, Arrow, the only, Talia is the only one we're definitely not bringing in. Some of them might actually cross over just a little bit, too. So I know you can't too. say it. I can't say it, yeah. But I'm thinking our fans are connecting the dots. I'm sure, I'm sure they will, yeah. <laughs> after that, Corey Michael Smith sat down, and after tap dancing through a couple couple of spoilery-ish questions from others. I asked him what that evolution was like and finally becoming the Riddler. Talk about that evolution over the last season into the Riddler leading up to the finale. What was that like to finally turn that corner and be able to have those moments finally? Well, I mean, it, it was wonderful. I mean, you know, knowing knowing that it was coming was very exciting. Uh, not knowing how it was going to happen was uh, terrifying. And then when it finally, when they finally sent me the draft of episode 15, which is how the Riddler got his name, um, the lovely thing that happened was I had very specific ideas of how it should happen, why it should happen, his objectives of uh, why he's trying to replace Oswald, why he's killing people, hunting for someone. Um, and so I was actually able to play a significant role in uh, not actually writing that episode, but directing how, how the episode went. Um, and John Stevens really let me participate a lot in that, which was nice. So going into the, you know, when he's finally the Riddler, was really delicious. The thing is, you know, it gets sidelined so quickly. Uh, and so it's like, I mean, he's like, he's the Riddler, and then it's like, oh, wait, we have to deal with some other problems here. Uh, and then, you know, now he's frozen, and what we're going into with season four is when he's thawed, his body thaws, but his mind doesn't thaw as, as, as easily. Um, 
And so all of a sudden, this person who has constantly dealt uh, with identi identity crises is finding himself in another one, which is I don't have the, the mental capacity that I had. I'm not computing the way that I was. So now what does that make me? The one thing I had over other people I don't even possess anymore. Um, and so he has to go on a sort of quest to figure out what's going on, um, which leads him eventually to Solomon and, uh, and Lee Tompkins. Talking to the cast of Gotham from San Diego Comic-Con 2017. And up next, it was the demon's head himself, Rachel Ghoul, Alexander Siddig. And the first question seemed obvious to me. What's it like being in that space playing such an iconic character? I mean, so much in the Batman mythos. It is a, it's, a, it's, it's actually a huge honor. Um, and uh, I, I kind of, that's a word that's banded about too freely, you know, most of the time. We say it's an honor to meet, you know, a girlfriend or boyfriend's parents. But that's not necessarily an honor. <laughs> to play a character like Resh Al Ghul is actually an honor. It's uh, someone that's lived in the annals of mythos for some 50, 60 years. Uh, and people are always really curious to know what the next version of him will be like. Um, and he not, there's not really been enough attention paid to him as a character. He usually arrives for a couple of Liam Neeson minutes and rushes off. <laughs> um, or he's, I, I hear he's, a, he's involved in Arrow a lot, um, but I, I didn't see that, so I can't, I can't talk to that. Earlier executive producer John Stevens said that Barbara would not be becoming Harley Quinn on Gotham. We finally put that to rest. So when I talked to Erin Richards, I wanted to ask her about the new Barbara that we'll be seeing and how she'll be received by the other characters. We're talking about this new direction for Barbara, but it's not just for her, it's for the rest of the cast as well. So how is that going to be received by Jim and some of the other people that she's interacted with? They will be uh, received very differently. Obviously, Tabitha is a big... Um, it's going to be a big problem for Tabitha that Barbara's back because she kills her, and for good reason, you know. Barbara shot um, Butch. So that's going to be the first kind of main obstacle. When Barbara comes back, that'll be the first thing that she comes up against, is that she needs Tabitha and Selena back in her... Um, power group so she will just be doing everything she can to get them back and then Jim uh, we Barbara and Jim come together in episode four and that's going to be really interesting because obviously she is going to be wildly different to how he remembers her and maybe the first time since the first series that he's seen her be a bit more kind of calm and collected so that'll be interesting in how that plays out and then other characters you know Penguin she's going to see again he'll I'm sure act in the way he always does where he just you know he'll just slip right into whatever he needs to to get back on top of her. So, yeah, it's good though. I'll be honest. Since last season, one of my most anticipated returns was Gotham coming back for season four because of everything that happened in that finale, not just between Penguin and Riddler, but everything with Gordon. And then David Mazouz standing on there as Bruce Wayne on that rooftop after taking down the criminals. And you know all the things that are coming. How can you not be psyched? For Gotham to come back on September the 21st, I am so excited right now, even after hearing myself again talk to the cast at San Diego Comic-Con 2017, I'm even more excited for Gotham to come back now.
That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to the cast and producers of Gotham for joining me at San Diego Comic-Con 2017. We'll have more of that coming up next week as well. Make sure you follow along with us on social media at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram, Facebook.com slash Down and Nerdy. If you can't remember all that, and I don't blame you, we're also online at downandnerdypodcast.com. You can find out everything from this week's show, past shows, a whole bunch of stuff just waiting there for you on our website. And with that, always remember you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.